Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. On September the 10th of 1945, Mike's short life was about to take a turn for the worse. You see, Mike had received a death sentence because Lloyd and Clara Olson decided to have chicken for their evening meal. So Lloyd got out his axe, he positioned it just right, down came the axe and off went Mike's head. Now Mike's head was dead, but his body was not. Now I know what you're thinking, I know exactly what you're thinking. Chickens, when they have their heads cut off, they run around for a while and for a few minutes until their blood kind of spurts out and then they stopped running around. But not Mike, not Mike. Mike forgot to read the rule book for playing the game of life. Mike stood up and started around as exactly if nothing happened. And even the next morning, Lloyd went out and found Mike sleeping with his head underneath his wing. Lloyd figured that if this chicken was so determined to live, he'd find a way to feed him with an eyedropper giving him grain and water, and Mike just kept getting healthier, gaining weight, getting fatter. When Mike went to crow like a chicken, he gurgled in his throat. His body went through the motions of trying to preen his feathers, even though he didn't have a head. So how was Mike able to survive like this? Well, it turns out that when his head was chopped off, most of the head was removed, but one ear remained intact, and Lloyd had missed the jugular vein. A clot kept Mike from bleeding to death, and most of a chicken's reflexes are located in the brain stem, which was also left untouched. So then Mike was featured on Life magazine, and then Miracle Mike, he went on tour. Mike even had a manager. It's not bad. So they put his head in a canning jar, and it went with Mike, and for just 25 cents, anyone could get a look at him. Mike was pulling in about $4,500 a month. That's no small amount of money back then. But I am sad to report that after 18 months, Miracle Mike, Miracle Mike choked, and Miracle Mike was no more. But his legacy lives on. I'm happy to report that his hometown has a webpage that is dedicated to him, where I saw a meme this last week of him that said he wasn't sure how he was supposed to wear a mask because of COVID-19 since his head was not attached. And each year, they have a festival in his honor, including a headless chicken race, the egg toss. I like this one. Pin the head on a chicken. That's good. The chicken cluck off, and of course, you always got to have the chicken dance. I bring Miracle Mike into our text because it raises a question of whether or not someone is truly alive. But we are not talking this morning about physical life. We're talking this morning about spiritual life. And this takes us directly to the heart of Revelation chapter 3 because there's a great misunderstanding, in my opinion, about the church at Sardis. 
Were they alive or were they spiritually dead? Was there life in Jesus Christ? And what I'm going to argue this morning may be contrary to what you've heard before. I'm going to argue this morning is that they were alive, but they need to get their head back in the game. I've been in a dead church. It used to be said that this was a dead church. But what I want to know this morning is how does Christ use this expression in his word, dead church? How does Jesus Christ use this phrase? What does a dead church look like according to scripture? We move now southeast, 33 miles from Thyatira to Sardis. Sardis had a long and rich history. As you came to this city from the north, it was a fortress-like city up on top of a plateau that was about 1,500 feet high. It looked completely safe from any attack, a city that dominated the valley below. The cliffs were almost straight up and were on three sides of the upper city. This was an easy city to defend. Sardis was one of the oldest cities of Asia, dating as far back as 1200 BC. But their confidence, and this is important to the text, their confidence in their position high up on this cliff led to their downfall. The people believed that their city was invincible and they had won some battles. There's no doubt about it, but they had become careless, not thinking that anyone could scale these cliffs and their pride meant that they had let their guard down. In 549 BC, Cyrus the Persian captured the city by sending soldiers up the cliffs that were left unguarded. Up until this time, this city had withstood so many attacks that when the Greeks first heard this, and then they, when they heard that Sardis had been conquered, they honestly could not believe that this city had been taken. But the people of Sardis, well, they're people. They didn't learn their lesson. And so it was again captured by Alexander the Great in 334 B.C. and then in 214 B.C. by Seleucid Antichus. Why, once again, sending his men up the sides of the cliff. So by the time of the first century, things had changed. The city was now at the foot of this plateau. It had roughly 120,000 people living in it. This was a trade city. This was a wealthy city with many Jewish families living in it. The favorite local pagan deity was the goddess known as Artemis. Two of her pillars of her temple still stand to this day. Now, her worship was immoral. Her worship was depraved. The men and women who served at the temple would be clothed in white robes and would serve as prostitutes to demonstrate the faithfulness to their God. And keep in mind before we move into Revelation 3 that this was a city that was very, very proud of its history. They had ceremonies to remember the past, and they were often led by these priests wearing these white robes. They had what was called a civic register that remembered the famous names of their history. This will become important in a bit. This was a proud city, a wealthy and immoral city. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this immoral city, there was a testimony of Jesus Christ. The church of Sardis, along with the church of Laodicea, are the only two churches out of all seven that the Lord does not start with a word of commendation. So here we go. Let's begin. Verse 1 of Revelation tells us, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are 
dead. To the church of Ephesus, Christ presented himself as the vigilant priest who examines the lampstands. To Smyrna, he shows himself as the faithful witness who suffered and died. To Pergamum, he is the righteous judge with absolute authority. To Thyatira, he was the militant son of God, treading down all that is in opposition to God. But this church here, the picture is given, the message is, whatever deficiencies exist in the church, these needs can be met by Jesus Christ through the supply of the Holy Spirit of God. And as we saw before in chapter 1, the reference to the seven spirits are a reference to the Spirit of God. But now we see that Christ is the one. Christ is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Christ in the church age is the one who supplies the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, what does it say? You guys know this verse. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from who? The Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And of course, Romans 8, 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. The spirit of God proceeds from the father and Christ supplies the spirit to those with life in Christ. Now think about the reason that Christ refers to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God, as the one who has the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that the answer is because God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, knew that this is what this dead church needed. It was to depend more on the work of God, more on the life of the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God. And Christ is described here as the one who has the seven stars. We saw that the stars refer to the angels, to the messengers, to the messengers of the churches. These were his messengers, and they belonged to Jesus Christ. But notice again, no words of commendation. But instead, what does Christ do? He moves directly to the criticism of this church, and he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but what? You are dead. Now, just as we saw before in the other churches, Christ knew their works, which declares to us something important, that the actions and the testimony of the church at Sarda was an open book to the omniscient Lord. It teaches us that nothing is hid from God. It's pretty funny. Yesterday I was out talking to my neighbor, and he knows I'm a pastor, and I was just trying to get the guy to water our lawn while we're gone and he's holding a beer, and he's trying to hide it from me. And I'm like, stop worrying about me and worry about him. Worry about God, amen? And that's what, that's what the teaching is here, is that there's nothing hid from God. He knows everything, so stop trying to play church. Stop trying to pretend that you can hide things from God and just be real and open and have a relationship with him. The idea here in Greek of their name is used of the idea of their reputation among men. So Christ is saying, I know the reputation you have as a church. I know the reputation that is out there. But Christ shatters their arrogance by telling them, but you are dead. Now this is condemnation from the Son of God. These are not the words that you ever want to hear. 
We read of no persecution at the church. We read of no trouble from false prophets coming into the church. Outwardly, this church had a great reputation. But from God's point of view, this church was dead. Now, what does that mean? See, the church is a place of life, a place of worship of the creator, a place where his people gather together. So how can a church be alive, but at the same time, dead? Follow this closely. Today, when we think of death, we think of physical death. Think of physical death. When your heart stops beating or when your lungs stop breathing. And with the mindset of today, with the lens of our way of looking at death, many commentators and many pastors go on to teach them that this means these people had no life in Christ. Here's the problem I have with that point of view. It doesn't fit the context at all. Because in verse 2, Christ is going to tell them to be watchful. Hard to be watchful if you're dead. Verse 3 is going to tell them to hold fast to the things they'd received. They'd already received some things. Verses 4 and 5, they had the white garments given to the people of God. Given to the people of God. Their names were in the book of life. So how is it said that these were not believers? I believe that the answer to what Christ means here, that they were dead, comes when we remember that the Greek word used can refer to physical death, but it can also refer metaphorically to the low moral quality of a person's life. I want you to notice that Christ is referring to their works. And when referring to inanimate things, dead in the Bible simply means poor quality. Think of the word useless. And this is how it's used in James 2.20, where it says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith without works is useless, is the meaning. Same meaning in Hebrews 6.1. Same meaning in Hebrews 9.14. Dead or useless works. Talking to believers at Sardis, Christ was telling them that their works were poor quality. Their works before God were useless. And if they wanted to reverse the trend, they needed an awakening that could only come as the believers turned back to Christ by the power of the Spirit of God at work in them. You know, when we look at the heavens, and honestly, this time of year, I start to miss the stars. I really do. Because from Wisconsin, we'd go out in the summertime and just gaze in all hours of the night, and Angie would complain, are you guys ever going to bed? That's my best Angie voice right there. But we would go out and look at the stars late 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. But you know, when we look at the heavens, when we look at space and the distances and the size of the universe, it's hard for us to to comprehend. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around because the nearest stars to us are trillions, not just like a few thousands, they're trillions of miles away. And those large distances have forced astronomers to speak of these distances in what? Light years. Light years. One light year equals the distance that light traveling at more than 186,000 miles per second travels in one year. Now that is about six trillion miles, six trillion miles. The distance to even the closest star is massive. And if a star that was 30 light years away from the earth exploded and it died five years ago, we wouldn't even know. We wouldn't even be able to tell by looking at it for another 25 years. You see, even though the star is long gone, the light would shine on as if nothing 
changed. Now, this perfectly sums up what goes on in many churches. They still shine with the testimony of a bright past. And if you look from a distance, you might think that nothing had changed. But the darkness, hear me, of the sinful living on the inside has put the light out, even though some of their reputation as a church remains. You see, Sardis had a reputation from the past that was still shining and going strong. But inside, the body of believers, the light had dimmed. Verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I come upon you. Jesus Christ was looking to restore this church. First, in verse 2, we have the command from Christ. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Be watchful, meaning become watchful. Or wake up, church, he's saying, wake up and keep on watching. The picture is of a sentry on guard, waking up and rushing to the weak point in the defenses. Kind of reminds me of Nehemiah 4, verse 20, when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah says this, he says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. See, the teaching was that these Christians must be like the sentries that were told to wake up and rush to preserve the testimony for Jesus Christ. Because they, just like so many today, were blending in with the lost. And it should have reminded these Christians of the history of this city in the past. When they failed to stand guard on the sections of the city with the steep cliffs. And it seemed to make them invincible, but it led to their fall. This church was about to make the same mistake that the city of Sardis had made. Because this church had become complacent. They had failed to guard their testimony of life in Jesus Christ. And so Christ teaches them they were to strengthen the things which remain. Stand for the gospel of Christ. Stand for the truth of Jesus Christ proclaimed in his word. Now look at how desperate the situation was. The things that remained were ready to die. Their witness for Jesus Christ was fading out. It was dying out. It was time to rekindle the flame. And notice the explanation from the Lord at the end of verse 2. He says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. The works being perfect in this case is that the works had not been completed. If a city was under siege, but its fortifications weren't even finished, if they were not complete, it did them no good. Their own history as a city proved this very fact. Christ was alerting the church to the danger at hand. The idea of their works not being perfect literally means not fulfilled, meaning they fell short. Their works were deficient before God. Works that please God must come from the motivation of a living faith. Now, before we move on, let me just point out there's something pretty cool here in the text. The text should read, for I have not found your works perfect before my God. Not just before God, it reads before my God. And that demonstrates that Jesus is also the son of man, that Christ is acting as our high priest before God the Father. Isn't that cool? And he wanted them to remember the truth. 
that they had received because if they did, oh, it would lead them to repentance and it would lead them to looking back to the past truth they had received. In November of 2009, news outlets started to report the story out of Belgium of this man, Rom Hubens. Now, Rom was involved in a car crash in 1983, way back in 1983 that almost killed him. Doctors thought that he was a vegetable, that he was stuck in a vegetative state. For 23 years, they thought this. He had all the signs. He was completely unresponsive. He was paralyzed. Brain scans in the early days suggested he was completely unaware of anything around him. Doctors believed he could feel nothing, that he, he could hear nothing, but he was conscious for those entire 23 years. He heard the doctors and nurses talk. He heard them gossip. He heard them tell stories. He heard them not do their jobs. He heard everything. He heard his mother deliver the news that his father had died, but he couldn't do anything. He was stuck there, stuck, unable to move and respond. He was unable to communicate. He could not even move his head. He could not even cry. He could only listen for 23 years. Years. Then in 2009, a neurologist discovered that Ram's brain is almost fully functional, aware of everything. He's just 100% paralyzed. Ram had the appearance of being almost dead, only to find out that he was alive. Now, it brings up an important point that we need to be careful today in the church of Jesus Christ and looking at churches and making a judgment. Some churches out there today look very much alive, don't they? You drive by, the parking lots are full. They have beautiful buildings, big, beautiful buildings. And you walk in, and they got every program known to man. And other churches look small, but they are very much alive. See, looks can be deceiving. Never forget the truth of 1 Samuel 16, 7. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. Amen. The church at Sardis was alive, and Christ was pointing back to when they had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, to when they had heard the truth of Jesus Christ. And he wanted the Christians to hold on to these foundational truths. Because if they didn't, Christ would come upon them like a thief. Now, it's tempting when you see that phrase, like a thief, to think, oh, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I used to teach that. I used to think that. But it's not in the context. Christ was talking to this specific church, warning them that just like the church of Ephesus, there's a consequence for sin. Sin has a consequence. When you sin, expect a consequence. A failure to repent will not usher in the second coming, but it could usher in Christ coming upon his church like it says here. Christ would oppose them. Christ would discipline this church if they failed to repent. Just like a night prowler, Christ would come to this sleeping church. Verse 4 in our text. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Here's where the text starts to get beautiful. This issue is not about who was saved and who was not. This is about some in the church remaining faithful to Christ and not defiling themselves. And the idea of a few names is of a few people. Some in the church had maintained their walk with Jesus Christ. They had not defiled themselves. It's always a remnant in the church that continues to walk with Christ. Notice how Christ describes them. They have not defiled their garments. 
The word for defiled literally means they had not stained their garments. Written in this way because in the pagan worship, if your clothes were stained, it disqualified you from going in and worshiping their God. It dishonored the God you were trying to worship. But in the word of God, garments are used in scripture for a different reason. They're used to speak of that which can be observed in the conduct and the character of a person. The picture given here with this metaphor is of a lifestyle that is unstained by what? Defilement, by sin, by Christians living for Christ instead of going out and blending with the world. Meaning that these brothers and sisters in Christ, they had done what they're supposed to do. They had walked with Christ. They had kept themselves pure and undefiled from the world. They were keeping themselves undefiled before the Lord. The Apostle John would later write in Revelation 7, Tribulation saints gathered in heaven with white robes. He would say this about that in Revelation 7. He would say, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, the teaching of Scripture is this. When men and women come to Christ, their garments are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Their garments are made white by the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents that they are now acceptable before a holy and righteous and perfect God. It's a promise, Christian. It's a promise of eternal life and an unblemished righteousness before Christ. This is our position in Christ. These few believers back in chapter 3 had remained undefiled in their condition. It points back to the times that these believers refused to defile themselves. But this is where we have to put it back into the context of Revelation chapter 3. Because the people then would have been used to something They would have been used to seeing the priests of Artemis walking through the streets dressed in their white robes. And so the message here to the Christians living then was even though they weren't to be a part of the processions through the city streets in the worship to these pagan gods, the day would come when they would take part in something far greater. They would walk with Jesus Christ in white. You see, this represents the companionship and the intimate fellowship that Christians have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this points forward in time to the messianic kingdom when we will share that intimate fellowship with the Lord. Think of the amazing grace of God that he declares his faithful as worthy. Those that maintain their witness for Christ were worthy of special praise. It demonstrates to me something important. It demonstrates just how much God values faithfulness to him. Even though it is by the work of Christ in our lives that we are even able to remain faithful. In 2005, there was an eBay auction online that read, quote, Let Stephen King kill you in his upcoming book. Sounds tempting, doesn't it? It was created by a nonprofit group, and the listing said, here is your chance to be immortalized in literary history. Bid on a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a character in an upcoming Stephen King book. The auction ended after 76 bids, with the winner agreeing to pay $25,000 to see his name printed in black and white. So the other authors started doing this. Once somebody makes some money, that's how America goes. Somebody else starts it. 
Other authors did this. One bidder paid $12,000 to appear in, in a John Grisham novel. And another paid $6,000 to be included in the book The 13th by someone named Lemony Snicket. But can I tell you this, Christians? None of these people have anything on the Lord Jesus Christ because he has been offering both immortality and inclusion in his literary masterpiece for thousands of years. He's the true author, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and his masterpiece is called the book of life. And you, Christian, have been included for free. Glory to God. Verse 5 tells us, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and his angels. Take the first statement. He who overcomes shall be. Notice the wording. Shall be clothed in white garments. These white garments stand for holiness and purity. This is the future tense. And I believe Christ is implying that believers will be involved in the priestly functions of the messianic kingdom. But before the kingdom of Christ is ushered in, what do we read in Revelation 19? We read of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 7 through 9 of Revelation 19 say, Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And then it goes on. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in what? Fine linen. Clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. See, the righteousness of the believers is based on the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result, by God's power in us, are the righteous acts of the saints. Take the second promise here in chapter 3, verse 5. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. The book of life is one and the same as the Lamb's book of life. Now hear me on this because this is so important to your faith. This is the heavenly register of all those reconciled to Christ by faith. Now let us be certain the word of God is more than clear that God's people regenerated to new life by faith in him are eternally secure in Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Because in Christ we have our eternal identity. So listen, here's the point. Here's the point of these words. Christ was not so much threatening the removal of a name, but was instead encouraging the overcomer. The strong negative here that Christ uses in the text is just simply a figure of speech where a strong negative is used to emphasize the opposite. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 4.15. Listen to the first part of the verse. It says, for we do not have... A negative, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Now, what's the point? What's the point of that in Hebrews 4? Is it that Christ cannot sympathize with our weakness? Is that the point? Or is it that he can? The point becomes very, very clear when we read the rest of the verse. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. A strong negative used to point out a positive truth. See, almost every city in the first century had a civic registry where they would keep a roll or a register of the city. And in that, in that record was entered the name of every child born of that city. And if one of the citizens was proved guilty of being disloyal to the city, then the person was dishonored. By removing their name from the register, it meant that you were no longer a citizen. 
But here is the promise that Jesus Christ gives to his own. Remember that the overcomer is simply a believer in Christ. Christ is telling his church, he's saying, the day is coming when I will clothe you, Christian, with white garments, and you will never have to worry about having your name blotted out from the book of life, ever. Our names as Christians will be remembered before the Father and his angels because of the glorious work of Jesus Christ in us. Christian, your name is forever secure in the Lamb's book of life. If that doesn't get you excited, something's wrong. This should give you hope. This should give you encouragement. This should help you tomorrow and the next day and the next day as you face everything in this awful world that we live in. Letting you know as the redeemed that your name is forever, ever, ever secure in the Lamb's book of life. And the last part of verse 5 reads, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see, if we confess the name of Christ out there today, it costs you. It costs you something. It hurts. I know. I do it every day. It hurts. But we can look forward to when Christ confesses our name before the Father. Now it ought to make us think of Luke 12, verse 8, where the Lord Jesus Christ said this, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. See, it can be lonely as a Christian. It can be difficult standing for Jesus Christ. I get that. But there is comfort in knowing that the day will come when the names of the people of God will be celebrated, celebrated, yes, celebrated in the heavenly court. Jesus Christ will one day stand beside believers clothed in white by the grace of God whose names are written with permanent ink in the book of life. And he will announce to the Father that we belong to him, glory to God, that we are a child of the King. What an incredible thought. And in the same words that Christ proclaimed to the other churches, verse 6 teaches us, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thousands of years ago, the Bible declared that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now modern science is starting to finally catch up and realizing that there is the fear and wonder of creation. Consider just one example. Your body is made up of, and I'm not stuttering when I say this, 100 million, million cells. And each of those cells has a complete set of instructions, I wonder who they were written by, about how to make your cells. This set of instructions is called the human genome. Your genome is packed with at least 4 million gene switches that reside in bits of DNA. Now for many, many years, scientists thought that many of these bits of DNA were completely useless, that they had no purpose. In the 1970s, this man, Francis Crick, one of the men who discovered the structure of the DNA, said that he suspected it was all little better than junk. So the phrase, junk DNA, has haunted human genetics ever since. Then in the early 2000s, Scientists still believe that perhaps 97% of what is called the sequence of bases in human DNA had no apparent function. They just couldn't figure it out. That's not that long ago. But in September of 2012, a team of 440 scientists from 32 labs around the world made a startling discovery. Your junk DNA? It's not really junk after all. 
Because as these scientists explored further, they discovered a complex system that controls these genes. So, so far, these scientists have determined that 80% of this DNA is active, and it's very much needed. Because it turns out what was called junk is now called a hidden treasure, a treasure that plays a very critical role in controlling how our cells, organs, and other tissues all behave. Can I tell you, Christians, that there was a hidden treasure at the church of Sardis? Because even though some of the Christians had defiled themselves, and even though some of the Christians had stained their walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ, these were still God's people, purchased by Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and destined to celebrate this new life we have in heaven before the Father. People underestimate Christians. That's actually the plan of God. Doesn't he tell us this in 1 Corinthians 1.27 when he says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. But I will tell you that there's a difference between a church that is useless in the eyes of God and one that is used for the glory of God. You see, a church that is useful to God is one where the people of the church are people of the book. Where the men in the church lead their families. They come with their Bibles in hand prepared to study the word of God. A church that is useful to God is a church with a loving fellowship. But a church that is not helpful to the work of Christ is a church where people bicker and people fight. And they don't really seem to care. They're just going for an hour a week. The future of Pioneer Baptist, the future of this church is in your hands. Your walk with Christ. Because how you lead your life, how you lead your family will help to determine the spiritual health of this body of believers. See, a healthy church has people who care about sharing the gospel of Christ. They, they love God and love others so much that they want to go share the good news of eternal life with others. A sick church doesn't do that. A dead or ineffective church is often a lazy church where pride and selfishness is more important than serving Jesus Christ. These are the types of churches that fight, and there's just a negative attitude about everything. You know, if you go to one of these churches, I've been in a lot of them, and I can't stand it. I sit in the back row for a reason. You walk away discouraged rather than encouraged that God is at work, drained, drained rather than built up in your faith, empty rather than well-fed in the word of God. But what a church like this needs is to be convicted and guided and led and empowered by the Spirit of God. Christ is looking for the church of Jesus Christ to get off their backside and wake up. Get away from the programs. Get away from the traditions. Get into his book. Get into his plan. Get into his purpose and fulfill the upward calling of living for him, abiding in him, trusting his love, trusting his word. Living as set apart, the set apart people of God until the day that Christ takes us home. So let this be our prayer. Look to the day when we stand before him, pure in heart, pure in mind, glorifying our heavenly king. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word 
is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com. Or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.